Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. This time, our Patreon patron callout is going to do double duty, thanking a supporter by including that person's pseudonym in a made-up conspiracy, and alluding to a sudden absence you'll notice midway through this episode. In this case, we're honoring Aaron Russell, who asked us to choose his pseudonym. So, Mr. Russell, or as the world's intelligence services know him, The Ripener, is one of the most wanted criminals on Earth. His M.O.? Breaking into people's homes and using his evil powers to instantaneously turn their avocados from hard as a rock to putrid, overripe, inedible mush in seconds. Our own Danny Unicorn has bravely set out on his trail and should have the whole case wrapped up in four weeks or so, at which time she'll return to us. Confused? Don't be. All will be explained midway through the episode, but I also don't want any of you to panic at our temporary Dana replacement. All is well. She will be back very soon. If you'd like your name or your pseudonym to join the Roll of Honor at the top of a future show, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash the paranoid strain at the $5 tier. We thank you kindly, both for listening and for supporting. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to the paranoid strain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Before we move on, there are two more voices I'd like you to hear from. The first is the controversial Taibi himself on his podcast, Useful Idiots, where he and his co-hosts comment on the press's total failure to actually grapple with the indictment of their behavior that the CJR's reporting represents. The story by Jeff Gerth this week. Yes, yes. Uh, in the Columbia Journalism. Oh, yeah. This is a unique thing in the history of journalism, right? So Jeff Gerth is a longtime New York Times sort of frontline reporter who covered all like the biggest stories in the you know the 80s and 90s covered the clinton white house did all this stuff um as credential as a reporter gets drops a twenty thousand word story in the columbia journalism review fights for it for years works on it for years that book length treatment is just a catalog of errors and it's full of on the record comments by people like bob woodward who talks about going into the new york post newsroom and the washington post newsroom and warning people away from the Steele dossier stories and having everybody just tune them out. 
there's one thing like that after the other, and the entire business is, is freezing. As we as we record this, it's like two days afterward. And has anybody picked it up? No, nobody in media has picked up, even, has done even a 30-second segment about 20,000 words in the Columbia Journalism Review, which just, I mean, it's, un, it's, it's incredible. And okay, as I previously noted, some folks think Taibbi's lost a step or even lost the plot when it comes to reporting in the modern era. So let's get a more solidly mainstream discussion from a recent episode of the excellent daily podcast, The Gist, in which host Mike Pesca interviews David Isakoff, longtime investigative reporter, now with Yahoo News, an expert on the whole Russiagate kerfuffle, who was actually quoted in that big Columbia Journalism Review article I keep harping on. This is your new plan? Instead of actually interviewing experts, you're just playing segments of more popular shows? No, I'm not planning to recycle other people's interviews in the future. It just so happened that Mike Pesca, one of my favorite interviewers, had the perfect person, David Isakoff, on his show to discuss precisely the thing that I was about to talk about, and their exchange reinforced pretty much all of the conclusions that I had come to on my own. So I figured, let Pesca do a little of my heavy lifting for once. Also, all of you should subscribe to The Gist. Seriously. First, Isakoff reminds us that there was a lot of good reason for the FBI to launch their investigation in the first place. Contra what you may be hearing from Republicans these days. There were lots of reasons to be quite suspicious about not just uh, what the Russians were doing, but about um, potential uh, connections uh, between uh, people in the Kremlin and people uh, close to Donald Trump and indeed Donald Trump himself. He tried, was trying to do business in Russia while he was running for president, something that was not disclosed to the public. He praised Vladimir Putin, seemed to ignore many of the um, legitimate issues that uh, the West has with uh, Putin. There were people in his campaign, in his orbit, Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, who had had um, relations with various people in Russia. There was a lot of reason mm -hmm. for the FBI to investigate However, as Pesca points out, there's been a real unacknowledged shift in what supporters of the Trump-Russia story have claimed that it proves since it first gained prominence. The Russians interfered, but there has been some goalpost moving among yes. members of the media, among elected officials. And the goalpost used to be Russians interfered with the help and assistance or maybe even at the behest of Donald Trump. And close members of the Trump coterie. Those goalposts have been moved to somewhere like Russia interfered. This is true. Fancy bear, cozy bear, the IRA, stealing, the, stealing Wikipedia. Trump knew about it and did nothing about it. But that that's where it moved to. But let us recall that for the length of the investigation and the Mueller report and even afterwards, the strong implication and assertion in many quarters was that Trump himself and those close to him were much more involved than I think we can say the facts bear out. Isakoff agrees, noting that leading papers, specifically the Times and Washington Post, have thus far been unwilling to acknowledge the stories we discussed earlier that were brought up in the CJR article, those blaring front pages that turned out to be based on false information. The media, CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace, they all did shows pumping up the Steele dossier, claiming falsely, wrongly, that it was being corroborated, that more and more information was coming out that corroborates the details in the Steele dossier, when in fact, nothing could have been further from the truth. So what have we learned here? Well, 
Hopefully, we see that well-intentioned, well-informed, civic-minded people can get caught up in a fervor. In this case, the fervor to see Trump removed from public life and punished for his many crimes, both real and imagined. And it can cause them to over-report stories damaging to their enemies based on thin evidence, and then that same groupthink can prevent a critical re-evaluation of that mania from actually taking hold. It also seems fair to say that the whole idea of fake news and the oppositional relationship of Trump and the press, though it may have been inevitable, was kicked off on the back of the Russiagate scandal, which ironically turned out to be one of the few areas where Trump was actually not as guilty as initially supposed. And therefore, the questionable and motivated reporting around this topic probably helped to set the stage for the fact-rejecting, do-your-own-research mentality that defined QAnon, which developed soon after the Russiagate phenomenon began. Of course, this misreporting and unwillingness to acknowledge mistakes is a far cry from the slack-jawed insanity of QAnon, but you can at least recognize some of Q's tribal and reality-evading DNA in the mainstream silence on this topic. Why am I spending so much time on this? It's at least partially because I think that when the responsible adults in the room, who are supposed to keep us on track while Trump continues to function on our body politic like, in a memorable John Mulaney phrase, This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. When those cooler heads prove themselves to be as excitable as QAnon believers, and as apt to hang on to a story that has largely been proved false, and when the press is unwilling to acknowledge and examine its mistakes, it makes everything that's already bad worse. And it makes reasonable people wonder if they can actually trust many generally trustworthy and responsible outlets. Recent history offers us a counterfactual for this scenario. Remember when Times reporter Judith Miller, among many others, ended up essentially accepting Bush administration claims about WMDs in Iraq as if they were true and failed to do enough fact-checking in the days before the Iraq war? to the point that completely fabricated quote-unquote intelligence handpicked by Cheney and company was plastered on headlines, announcing that in spite of the best intelligence available, Iraq did indeed have weapons of mass destruction, and thus it helped to justify the invasion? Well, I remember it, because I'm old. I also remember that, in the ensuing years, the Times and many other publications did autopsies of that coverage, acknowledged their mistakes, and used what they had learned to put in policies and procedures to help them avoid making the same errors in the future. But this time they're not doing any of that. And I get it. It's because it's Trump, and they think he's a unique and ongoing threat. But they're making a mistake, and they need to come clean. And all of us who bought into this story too heavily at the time, I'm including myself in that number, need to be more cautious about believing stories that verify our existing prejudices. It's not like your favorite podcaster is the only one who thinks this is a real problem. In the second part of the same interview, Host Pesca asks David Isakoff why he thinks the media hasn't acknowledged Russiagate mistakes. Spoiler alert, Mr. Isakoff agrees with me. Why doesn't the media acknowledge that there were major mistakes made in the characterization of the Steele dossier? Um, well, I, I mean, number one, none of us like to admit we're wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, none of us like to, you know, fess up when, you know, corrections are needed, but you know, that's what editors are for. That's what, you know, supervisors are for uh, to ensure those sorts of things happen. But, you know, more broadly, I mean, it's a reflection of our tribalized, you know, uh, um, political environment today. Yeah. Where you're either one camp or the other. And, um, you know, the, it's all about, you know, 
hurling spitballs at each other on Twitter and on cable TV. And, you know, that is not an environment or culture that allows for nuance and reflection and for, um, you know, sober looking back. And um, we are captive of our narratives um, far too much. And, um Look, I mean, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time, as you point out, and you know, I the you know the surest way uh, to the front page of the Washington Post when I worked there, or the cover of Newsweek when I worked there, or NBC Nightly News when I worked there was I, I, I come up with a story that fits a preconceived narrative. That's what people already believe. Except you've got new evidence that show what people believe is. True is even more true, right? So that's yes. that's the easiest way to get on the front page. Yeah, I do think that the people who run many of these uh, media outlets at least like to see themselves, uh, and it's an honestly held belief that they wouldn't do that and they're fair brokers. But I think we've, to some extent, gone from being driven by facts to being driven by truth. And so we think the truth or the media thinks the truth is that Donald Trump is a threat and Donald Trump is a liar. And he actually lied about even things that he was innocent about. And so therefore, if you're serving the truth, um, that's one thing. If there are facts that maybe contradict the truth, well, default to what you think the truth is, which is something like, as I said, Donald Trump, Trump can't be trusted in any of this. Right. But back to what we've learned. We can use this story to help remind ourselves the next time some horrific Trump-centric story comes up, whether it's Q-related or not. When you hear about these things, it's always a mugs game to try to ascribe higher-level, sinister, carefully constructed motives to the scenario. Trump isn't secretly an anti-American super spy, or hoping to hand Putin the keys to the country, or a 3D chess master outmaneuvering his opponents always four steps ahead in his plan to turn the free world into a fascist state. No. He's a wildly incompetent grifter with incredible baseline political instincts for reaching resentful people, coupled with a bottomless pit of narcissistic self-regard. And he's surrounded with other grifting narcissists who have sewn their fortunes to his rapidly fraying coattails with gold-plated thread. And every single thing they do, and every crime they commit, is invariably either about making money or naked self-aggrandizement. The mistake of the Steele dossier and Russiagate wasn't in wrongly assuming Trump was corrupt enough to do the bidding of Russia. It was that he would be competent enough and energetic enough, and that Putin could trust him enough to actually perform that role. But he's not. And it's so much easier to understand all of this if you just look at it through the twin lenses of narcissism and greed. As Isakoff points out, former Trump campaign chairman Manafort, he had some very shady, very questionable dealings with obviously criminal figures in Eastern Europe. But again, the explanation is banal. Yes, there was like major charges successfully brought against Paul Manafort, but, you know, they largely had to do with payments from, you know, the pro-Russian government in Ukraine and acting as a foreign agent for that. Not so much with any direct dealings with people in the Kremlin. Now, one of the reasons I thought that the FBI had good reason to investigate Manafort during this period is um, he was in hock to uh, Oleg Deripaska. He was in hock to a leading guy <laughs> very close to Vladimir Putin. That's a potential compromise right there. 
And, you know, you go back to what people, um, uh, what the Senate Intelligence Committee concluded about Manafort's uh, sharing of polling data with um, uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, um, a guy assessed to be uh, part of Russian intelligence. Um, and the most logical explanation for that was not that he was trying to help the um, uh, internet research agency in its targeting of uh, social media ads, but he was trying to suck up to oligarchs in, the, uh, in Ukraine and possibly Deripaska himself by feeding them some stuff so he can get some business after he um, uh, left the um, the Trump campaign, which he did yeah. in August of that year when he was fired. Use this lens to look at Trump's firing of FBI Director Comey, the move that essentially triggered this whole mess, and you can see it more clearly. It appears now that Trump actually knew he wasn't guilty of this shit and that the Russia Steele dossier story just wasn't true. But he couldn't convince anyone of this because he lies every time he breathes. So he did what any reactive narcissist baby would do, he fired the FBI director because he was unable to consider the consequences beyond his current fit of peak, and he couldn't fathom that this would make him look guilty for the one goddamn thing he actually wasn't guilty of. Holy shit, we live in weird times. Dana? It's, uh, it's your line. Dana? Is this the kind of performance I'm not paying you for? This is ridiculous. I'm going to call your agent, and we're going to have words. Wait, I just remembered you don't have an agent. Have you abandoned me? Gone out for smokes and disappeared like a deadbeat dad? What happened? Here's Dana. There, uh, frightened? I'm Dana Unicorn's cousin, Elena Pegasus. Uh, that's fearful and nice to meet you, I guess. But why are you here and what have you done with Dana? Oh, it turns out cousin Dana forgot to mention that everyone in Europe goes on holiday for the entire month of August and she already left on hers before you sent her this set of lines. She's gone for a month? How am I supposed to put out the next couple of shows? That's where I come in, because I'm not just an American, but an American from the South. I don't get nearly enough vacation to nope out for a whole month. So she asked me if I could stand in for a couple of episodes until she gets back. Oh, I get it. This is one of them Dukes of Hazard situations. What do you mean? As all of us geezers know, there was a pay dispute with the original Duke boys, Bo and Luke. And while they were refusing to appear until their contracts were resolved in season five, the producers recast the roles with a pair of blonde and brunette lookalikes named Coy and Vance, who simply performed the already written scripts with name replacements. The audience hated them, though, and demanded 
the return of the original cast. Oh, it sounds like someone's a little cranky about last-minute changes. Do you need a little nap? Something to calm yourself down before we proceed? Should I call your attendant? No, I think I'm okay. As long as you do the Dana... Sorry. The Elena lines. Properly. Wow, that sounds weird. I've learned at the knee of the master. Uh, mistress? Whatever. And remember, it's only for a little while. Straniacs, I fear even a temporary change as much as any of you do. But Dana's coming back soon, and this lady seems nice. So let's welcome and thank her for stepping into the breach. Before we finally stop talking about Russiagate, I need to convey a theory that has bothered me for years. This one's not something I've heard a lot of other people weigh in on, but my gut tells me there's something to it, so take that as you will. As Dana and I discussed earlier, I think there's an argument to be made that by overplaying the Russiagate Mueller scenario, the anti Trump forces, as broadly construed, may actually have contributed to Trump's skating on other horrific shit he definitely did. Most importantly, the Ukraine phone call where he basically tried to hold the congressionally approved transfer of arms to that country hostage. If you've followed Trump, you'll recall this communication as the perfect phone call. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. If you take a look at that call, it was perfect. You folks were saying such lies, such horrible things about a call that was so innocent and so nice. Think back to those days. After the initial flurry of reports and understandably horrified reactions by reasonable people across the U.S. and the globe, and once the Democrats finally put together their first impeachment trial, broad public support for removing Trump from office just never got over the threshold that might have caused at least a few Republicans to waver on whether or not to kick that motherfucker out. And I strongly believe that the reason for that is what I might call Mueller fatigue. That is... If that whole scenario you lefty screamed about for two years ended in a wet fart, why should we, the not politically involved or motivated median voters of America, believe you now when you insist this Ukraine thing is an even bigger deal? Remember, most people don't pay much attention to politics, even those political scenarios that you might, for excellent reasons, think are a threat to the entire concept of the functioning of a democracy. They really don't. So when you make a big stink about a thing that turns out not to be nearly as much of a scandal as you implied, people are going to boy who cried wolf you the next time you try to convince them that another scenario is even more super serious. Fortunately for us fans of equal justice under the law, the ever-expanding number of indictments of Trump happening at municipal, state, and federal levels are rekindling the spark of hope that he might, at some point, actually see consequences for his lifetime of grifting and malfeasance. Now, it's always possible that he will somehow skate on those charges. Or, even worse, once again defy the odds, which are even longer this time, and actually win the presidency in 2024, thus potentially sparking a major constitutional crisis if and when he's both elected and convicted in one or more of these cases. Until next year, it appears we're in something of a waiting game, not only to see what Trump's fate is, but also to see what the QAnons do in reaction. And back to QAnon, the nominal focus of this whole series. 
One of the best pieces of news that has come out over the past few years is that in the wake of Trump's loss, Q's cultural relevance has appeared to decline. A quick check of the trend line in Google searches shows that since its maximum search popularity in, oh, surprise, surprise, January of 2021. Hmm, I wonder what news event could possibly have driven that interest. It's a mystery. Anyway, searches for QAnon are down to about 10% of their level two years ago, which is most likely a sign that however many hardcore adherents remain, and there seem to be plenty in one form or another, which we'll get to in a moment. But the mind virus that spreads QAnon is at least somewhat on the retreat. As one USA Today report put it on the second anniversary of the Capitol riots, quote, With its figurehead Trump out of office, increasingly shunned by Washington and facing multiple investigations, QAnon has largely shrunk back into the dark corners of the internet whence it came. However, its declining relevance in the U.S., at least as a separate and distinct movement, we'll see how it's mutating and influencing other extremist movements in new and hideous ways a little later. Yes, while it may be subsiding domestically, our international listeners, along with some other disturbing news reports, have clarified to us that QAnon's non-U.S. relevance is only picking up steam. If you think about it, this makes sense. Q is really a cult of Trump in the U.S. Internationally, where Trump isn't a constant factor in other countries' politics, the fact that he's out of office might not have the same depressive effect on Q belief that it has here. Not that Q beliefs make any more sense outside of America than they do inside of it, but we feel the international smorgasbord of crazy provides us a unique opportunity to, for once, feel a little better about how batshit our fellow Americans are by learning that every other country has their own supply of nutters. Let's get one potentially foreign QAnon-related story out of the way immediately. It's a quick excerpt from a QAnon-focused podcast that I'm going to bring up again later. I thought it was worth it to point out this particular moment in that show, as the host and his researcher react to the suggestion that perhaps... And I really think this is the last bit of Russia-related stuff in this series. Maybe it's the case that QAnon was actually a PSYOP created by the Russians. I mean, it does sound like the kind of thing they would like to do, drive part of the population mad by suggesting their fellow Americans are the real enemies, and thereby perhaps convince some hardcore Trumpies that the Russians are, by the rules of QAnon and opposite day, actually the good guys. I hope our earlier discussion of the information madhouse that is Putin's Russia, and its very real attempts to spread disinformation, confusion, and hatred, both domestically and to its enemies abroad, will reassure you that we're not looking to let them off the hook for this, even if we spent some time a few minutes ago downplaying the effectiveness of Russia's election rat-fucking efforts in 2016 and 2020. After looking into it, though, we agree with Nikki Wolf, host of the Finding Q podcast, and with his researcher, Aoife. To simplify it, this theory kind of claims that QAnon was created as an ARG or an alternate reality game and that it was then controlled by Russia as a psychological operation or a PSYOP against the US, right? And an ARG is essentially a game that kind of incorporates elements of the, the real world into the gaming world. It kind of, you know, blurs the lines between reality and gaming, I suppose. Aoife, though, is as skeptical as I am. I would say that the, the Russia theory is actually somewhat of a conspiracy theory itself because... Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a bit of evidence that... Um, that Russia was, you know, controlling Twitter accounts that were pushing QAnon hashtags in the very early days. But I mean, I think that impact is massively overestimated by some people. Yeah, as well. totally. and like, like, do I think Russia like jumped in once they saw it was a thing and like signal boosted it? Sure, like they exactly. probably basically do with everything. Yeah. But like, 
Did that have a meaningful effect on its spread? Probably not. No, I don't think so. So like, yeah, most of the evidence that I've seen of like the Russia theory is pretty circumstantial. I, I haven't seen anything that gives it much credibility, to be honest. And I also have like an issue with this as well, because I think that simplifying QAnon as a Russian controlled psyop, yeah. it's just like, it lets people wash their hands of it in some ways and right, go like, exactly. oh, it was Russia, you know? Whereas this is like an American phenomenon, right? Exactly. It is a homegrown US cult. So one thing we really can't blame the Russians for is QAnon. That's our fault. Mea culpa. But now let's turn our attention to one Q-adjacent movement that actually migrated, at least in mitigated form, from our neighbor to the north into the USA. I'm speaking, of course, of the Canadian trucker convoy that so dominated the news in the first months of 2022, and which listener Joe Chambly reminded us to include when we asked folks on Facebook for topic ideas. In case you somehow missed it, a group of truckers pulled into Ottawa in early 2022 and parked their rigs in the middle of streets making them impassable, and drawing attention to the main subject of their protest, their demand for an end to Canada's vaccine mandates, especially as they related to truck drivers. This event inspired other convoys, including one that made a lot of noise as it headed across the U.S. to its eventual target, snarling traffic in D.C. to protest U.S. COVID mandates and to promote other MAGA-related ideas. These ideas include the utterly brilliant comedy phenomenon, Let's Go Brandon, which I'm sure all of you already heard about, and which is trying to claim the crown as the dumbest political slogan in U.S. history, defeating such worthy contenders as Tippecanoe and Tyler 2, Win, Whip Inflation Now, and I Like Ike. See, the idea is that many, many people want to open their windows and yell, Patty Chayefsky network style, one hot button phrase. That phrase being, of course, Fuck Joe Biden. But the problem is the social justice warriors and speech police won't let you say fuck Joe Biden in public anymore. It's impossible. You just can't hear anyone express that kind of sentiment anywhere in what used to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Okay, maybe sometimes flinty patriots like the entire crowd at a Ted Nugent concert are brave enough to express this idea quite loudly through a huge PA with no repercussions whatsoever. But literally no one else in the rest of the U.S., nay, the world, is allowed to express this sentiment because they're so intimidated by the thought cops or something. Luckily, Maganation put its brightest minds to the problem, and they quickly came up with the seemingly innocuous phrase, let's go, Brandon. Wait, how is that connected to fuck Joe Biden? Well, I mean, it has the same number of syllables, Elena. So... So, uttering this phrase, or even better, emblazoning it on a huge flag you can fly off your lifted pickup, makes it easy for other cool Trump-loving folks who are in the know to see that you're one of those awesome, with-it people who understand this very complex underground cipher, which is so rare, you only see it plastered on, let's say, 98% of the vehicles at any given NASCAR event, for example. But why don't they just say, fuck Joe Biden? Like, as a disappointed lefty, I'll say it right now, fuck Joe Biden. Get out there and fight. Or, even better, let a woman give it a shot, huh? I hear Dana Unicorn is available. If there weren't a number of problems with that proposal, including her lack of interest, the fact that she doesn't live here, and her constitutional ineligibility, I'd be the first in line to vote for President Unicorn. 
But your comment points out a glaring hole in this whole idea. Left-wingers have been flummoxed, trying to understand what the hell this whole talking in code thing is supposed to accomplish. I guess maybe you can send your kids to school in Let's Go Brandon t-shirts? So, that's a win. This whole thing reminds me of a brief period where a bunch of friends and I came up with a very sophisticated code in sixth grade, where the rule was that you spelled out each word but said on after the sound of each consonant, and used a ch sound for C. Vowels were pronounced with the letter name. So fearful would be fon e a ron fon ulan. Why did we do this stupid thing? So that we could curse in class, obviously. A few days into this phenomenon, after one too many kids announced Fan Yu Chan Kan Yan O Yu at one of the other 12-year-olds, our teacher clearly replied, please stop using the code, and we realized we weren't nearly as clever as we thought we were. This idea has yet to occur to Let's Go Brandon fans, satisfied to keep thinking they're still owning the libs with this clever wordplay. It's like that apocryphal story about early Christians tracing a fish symbol in the dirt to recognize each other during times of Roman repression, except for self-satisfied dickheads. Wow, Cousin Dana was right. You are one digressive motherfucker. Oh, great. None of the Dana, all of the critique. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.